Hello and welcome to a new conversation about software engineering. This is Joy Clark. Today on the Case Podcast, we will talk about software architecture. My guest today is Stefan Tilkov, who is a software architect and co-founder at InnoQ. Welcome to the show, Stefan. Hi, Joy. Nice to be here. It's nice to have you. Um, so today we want to talk about software architecture. And the first um, question that I have when I think of the word software architecture is, what is it? That's a very valid question, I, I think. So um, I think most people, when they think of this, think of some, some weird esoteric kind of thing that nobody really knows how to define. But, but I think it actually has a pretty clear definition, like all, like all technical terms, it has lots of them. But I think there's sort of, sort of an agreement about what it means, which is essentially that it's the most critical decisions, the sum of the most critical decisions that you make in any software development effort. So some people define it as the sum of um, the, uh, the components that you have, the connections between those components and the rules those components and connections follow. Some people say it's uh, the, kind of, um, the kind of decision that's expensive to change afterwards. Um, some people say the hard decisions. Some people say the decisions that you have to make, have to make early on. There are a few hundred definitions, and then we'll, we'll, we'll put a link into the show notes um, about uh, to a website at uh, the Software Engineering Institute that collects all of them, and you can have your own try and add some more of them. But essentially, I think they all capture the same essence, the same idea that software architecture is the, the most important critical structural, the sum of the structural decisions that you make about your software system. But we have something like Agile now. So do we still need the, this off architectural decisions and everything because it's all should be agile so it should be able to change yeah, frequently so that's, a, that's a, also a very good question i think we're, we're, it's it's very easy to conflate a number of things here so uh, on the one hand there is a, there's this idea of software architecture as a distinct discipline something different from software engineering or software development where somebody comes up with the great architecture and once it's done and and you know bound into several heavy leather volumes of you know, it's, it becomes uh, polished and finalized and is given over to a team to execute. And that's, that's one, one view that's, that's clearly very, very off and always has been wrong. Um, the other thing is that many people conflate documentation with the actual system and think architecture is something that um, is only embodied by a number of, uh, you know, pieces of paper or diagrams or posters or something like that. To my view, this is all... This, this all, uh, is all very misleading. Actually, software architecture is an aspect of um, the thing that you're building. If you build a system, it will have an architecture. Whether you've created it intentionally or whether it just happened to you because you didn't think about it, that doesn't really matter. Your system will have a certain architecture. Good architecture, a bad architecture, a well-defined, ill-defined, whatever, it has an architecture. There's no way around it. So you can either... Uh, accept that fact and, and embrace it and say, well, let's let's think about it and make conscious decisions as opposed to just uh, letting things happen by accident. Um, and that is, I think most people would agree, probably a good idea. It doesn't at all mean that you have to do this uh, uh, at the very beginning and a big upfront effort where you have a uh, hundred people sitting in a room thinking about this. It's really, there are many, many ways, many roads that lead to a good architecture um, as an end result. But, um, which one is the right one depends, of course, on your circumstance and your project. 
But essentially, it's uh, it's kind of a weird thing to say that you don't want to have that because you're following a particular methodology, like, for example, agile software development. I don't think agile development and software architecture have any conflict whatsoever. It's perfect, matches perfectly well. So the architecture can change over time. Well, it's sort of... Of course, there is a problem because, as I said in the beginning, architecture is, uh, is sometimes defined as the sum of the things that are hard to change. So it's not as if it's easy to change. If it's an architectural aspect, an architectural decision, then it's by definition not something that you can change at the spur of a mo on the spur of, a mo of the moment just to you know because you're fancy doing something different today. Um, if it were that easy, if you could change it that easily, it's probably not an architecturally relevant decision. So um, if you have a system of significant size then um, you can't change things all the time. But it doesn't mean that it's set in stone. Of course, you can evolve it. You can, you can do new things. You can add new things. You can, in fact, have an architecture that supports this as opposed to having one that doesn't. So you're probably going to end up with a system that, um, that embodies many different architectural um, decisions, some of which are harder, some of which, some of which are easier to change. And... Um, One of the goals is to find out where to apply which rule and which, which strategy to make things workable in the long run as well. So how much is the, um, the technology that we're using in the software uh, world? We have lots of different kinds of technologies. Um, how much does that determine the architecture that we end up having in our system? So I think there are many answers to that. One is that um, if, you think of the, uh, if you think of the core the main architecture of your system, you think of the things that make up the business logic of your system, this is to a large degree independent of any particular technology. And I think many people refer to that when they say that architecture should be completely independent of technology. This kind of architecture clearly is. If, for example, you're building, uh, let's say you're building a medical system that has a rule engine um, that interprets um, some business rules as to when to turn on which um, which device and when to apply which therapy. I don't. Know, I have no idea. I'm not. I'm talking about a domain I don't know much about. But if you have something like that, then there are clearly a lot of a lot of rules that just um, apply to this abstract model that you have embodied in your in your software. So um, it doesn't really matter whether that is connected to a simulator or to the actual device, whether it's uh, the device. Uh, with the hardware of this generation the next generation this is just sort of the business core it's what you would arrive at if you did something like domain driven design and came up with a good business model maybe in various contexts but a good business model that just has business objects with rules and methods and maybe events and you know this this kind of architecture is largely technology independent but that is not really useful if that's all you have right at some point in time you have to do something uh, you have to have some side effects you have to i don't know maybe create some entries in a database do some queries do some output formatting create draw some pictures on a screen create a virtual 3d model of, i have no idea lots of different things that are that become very very device dependent so that will be one thing where of course part of your architecture deals with with abstracting those things away And part of your architecture deals exactly with making them very tangible and very accessible and giving them interfaces and connecting them and plugging them together. So the, the, uh, the, the technical aspects of the architecture are, of course, important as well. If, you, if, you talk, if you're talking about that thing, if that is the domain you're actually viewing, the domain you're actually talking about. And then there's a third related area, which is uh, all of the 
and I hate that term, non-functional things. So if they're non-functional, these are not the functional requirements or the results of applying functional or fulfilling functional requirements. It's the sum of the decisions that you have to make to support the quality attributes of your system. So if I'm building a system that um, runs on my laptop, um, I obviously have um, different requirements than when I'm building something that's supposed to run as a service serving 250 million users. If I have 250 million users, and who wouldn't want to have that, um, I will end up um, caring about um, scalability and robustness and fault tolerance and availability and all those things, and they also require architectural decisions, a lot of them. So you could you could argue these are different perspectives. You're looking at a whole system, and I've, I've not at all addressed all of the potential perspectives, right? There's like um, the systems perspective and the hardware and the networking and whatever. Lots of different views of this of that system as a whole. And each of them uh, requires um, um, to consider a different thing, your core domain, and a different thing, part of the you know decoration around it. If I'm t if I'm only consider considering how to maybe replicate my data uh, so that I get maximum maximum availability, I don't really care that much about the domain objects that I'm storing in that database. Um, if I'm talking about the if I'm talking about the uh, the data itself or about the, the business object itself, I obviously care about this. And if the two connect, if I have only this database technology available to turn this domain model into something persistent, I obviously have to consider both of them. That was a long-winded answer. But the uh, essential thing is it's not easy to say uh, how, how, much how much is technology part of your architecture. Clearly, um, one of the ideas is that you, uh, that you build a modular system that contains a parts that are as loosely coupled as possible and so very often you will uh, will not look at certain aspects abstract them away ignore them and uh, focus on something else and then obviously this other part is at that point in time irrelevant so you continue working with the thing that's currently in your focus and then you you care mostly about that so if the technology does play a role in the architecture should um, the software architect, then be able to code, be able to do these technologies that we're dealing with. Yeah, so I think it's uh, you could maybe maybe use the analogy to uh, to an architect who doesn't know how to build a house. That seems like a, like a weird idea, right? I mean, you have to have you have to have some knowledge about the whole thing. So at the very very least, at the absolute minimum, um, you should uh, at least in theory be able to do that. So I cannot imagine a software architect. Um, who was never a programmer? I have no idea how that could possibly work because mm -hmm. this is a very, this is a very technical task. You make very important decisions. I think we're going to talk about the role probably later. So how to enforce decisions or how to get people to agree to decisions uh, also plays a very important role. But I think at the very least you have to be um, able, at least in theory. So now, you can, now we can start arguing. So some people say that. Um, if you were a coder a decade ago, that's still good enough. You still know how to do it and things don't change that much. To a certain degree, that's correct. I mean, things don't change that fundamentally. I mean, if you know functional programming from the 60s, you're still pretty good to go in, in 2017. But the, um, on the other hand, uh, very clearly, if it's, if it's too long ago, if you're out of practice, if you don't really know how things work, then, uh, then it's uh, it's a it's a very valid question to ask whether you're the right person to make those important decisions if you cannot judge the consequences that they have. So ideally, I think ideally, uh, the architect would be a full-time coder, absolutely involved in all of the code base. Ideally, they'd also be a system administrator, 
and a network engineer and a scalability engineer. And they'd be, yeah, everything at the same time. And especially in a project that has a certain size, that's simply not a strategy that you can that you can actually apply in practice, right? So you have to give up something. If it's a large project with maybe, I don't know, let's say it's a military thing or a large industrial thing with 200 or 500 people, then there will be architects who are only architects. And I think that's okay. If you have a team with five people and one of them says, well, I don't, I no longer want to work. I don't no longer want want to do the coding stuff i now i'm something better now i'm an architect something's very clearly wrong so in a smaller team um this actually becomes a role that people assume that multiple people could assume at various points in time and if you have a small team that works very well together then the people will make um architectural decisions all the time and maybe they'll there won't be very probably there won't be any one person who's called the architect but still your system has an architecture and you're making lots of architectural decisions all the time. You're making them even if you're programming on your own. It's just the important stuff is the architecture, right? That's that's something you do. So I don't need to have a special certification or something? Well, yes. You don't need a certain special case of certification. I definitely completely agree with that. Um, that said, um, I actually, we were, we're doing the, the company with does some trainings and they end with some sort of certification. It's even an architect certification. Now I share the views that many people have assert about certification, which is that in itself, it doesn't prove anything. Nevertheless, there's a market for this thing and people, people ask for it as part of their personal career path and it makes things comparable. So I don't object to it on principle. I would never assume that uh, you can only be a good architect if you have a certain certification. On the other hand, it doesn't hurt to have a certain kind of training, and if that's certified, then that's that's fine with me as well. But the uh, the general the general feeling is definitely true. Uh, the general uh, assumption that um, you don't have to you don't have to fulfill some sort of exam to do architectural work, because that's not how our industry works, and I think that's probably for the better most of the time, at least. Well, I, sometimes I do wish people would learn a bit about this, um, and it would actually help them. But I don't think it has to be enforced. It should be. It should be. It should be required or mandated by anybody. I think it's a good idea to to consider these things and to uh, spend some time uh, talking about art or reading about or reading up on architecture as a specific topic, as opposed to something that just happens on the fly. I don't think it's a bad word. I, I know this feeling that some people, and that's probably our industry's fault. In the, in the past decades, sometimes architects went completely overboard. It was like all that we all that. Have, all that people did was talk about fancy architecture and meta architecture or whatever stuff without ever doing any actual work. And that sort of creates a certain, certain backlash that's, that's completely understandable. And I, and I sympathize with people who think that um, architects are just uh, people who draw pretty pictures that can, can't crash and never have problems. And so they live, live in this happy world. I, I, I sympathize with that feeling. On the other hand, I think it's it's uh, it's a little extreme because sometimes those things are very useful and it's a useful thing to talk about and consider architecture an explicit topic. Um, so if I'm a, just a normal software developer mm -hmm. um, and I'm just working in this project, how much is it my responsibility to ensure that the architecture is actually carried out? If there's some archi software architect who has decided how... Um, how our software product is going to be structured. How much is it my responsibility to follow those rules? Okay. So I'd like to, I'd like to question that, that split between roles, but we can do that later on. So at the, okay. let's just assume that this is the case. Somebody has made some architectural decisions for you. 
and you're the junior person in the project and now you're just wondering how much do I have to care about this? Do I have to care about this at all? Um, and I think um, if it's a traditional project that's run this way, where there's a clear a responsibility for some person to make the architectural decisions and for you to not do that, just to follow stuff, then one of the things that you'd have to do was be to be, to be aware of what the architectures, architectural rules are for this particular system. So let's assume you're building a typical kind of enterprise system. And some of those rules might be, how do we persist stuff to the database? How do we query it? How do we serialize things across the network? What is our typical pattern to implement a service or a command? Um, how do we how do we uh, uh, visualize things on the screen or in some some web view, whatever it is that you have as a as the view technology? Um, those things um, will likely follow a certain set of pre-described uh, uh, stereotypical solutions. So that if I look at the system, various things done by different people will look similar. That's one of the typical goals that an architect would have, so that they find common solutions, so that things become easier to build, easier to maintain, easier to recognize, easier to evolve in the future. So as a developer, your goal will be to look at those things and maybe know those patterns and apply them. And of course, that seems very, it's all, this all seems very wrong to me, the way that I'm phrasing it, because I don't think, I don't like, I don't think anybody these days likes having, uh, you know, uh, coding monkeys who just follow pre-described things. So I would, I would say at the very, very least, one of the things that you would have to do is to question those rules and say, well, this is, this is how I'm supposed to, and now I've understood the rule and I, I, I know how to apply it, but it feels wrong to me. And this is how I would suggest to do it because then it would be better. Uh, and then hopefully you'd convince somebody that that's a good idea. Um, and maybe either change the rule or extend the rule to say, well, this is the rule for the 80-20 case, but in this 20% case, we have this better way of doing things. So that will be one thing, evolve the rule set. Um, I think that... Um, that is one of the most important things from the other side. So if you are an architect, if you are the person who wants to you know, enforce an architecture, then I again would say, first of all, you should reconsider whether that's a good way of, th of thinking about things because the term terminology is all wrong. But let's just assume that that is your role. You want to enforce things. Then the very first thing that you have to do is to convince people that's, that it's a good idea, right? You can, you can do that by ordering them and if you have some power invested in you that allows you to do that, maybe you can get by. But even then, even if you have the formal power to enforce a rule, that in general does not at all mean that it's going to be applied, right? Because it just, for, for example, it just may not work. As one of the harsh realities of being an architect, something sounds very cool and really nice, and it also looks absolutely awesome on your CV, and it matches exactly what you saw by that person on that conference. But it just doesn't work. And uh, you, and the developers who actually have to apply that rule find out that it doesn't work and they just circumvent it somehow and find it because they have to find a solution to get the, the thing running. So now nobody has nobody has won. The people are unhappy because they have to follow stupid rules and circumvent them. You're unhappy because you're not seeing the architecture that you that you wanted to have. So that is this idea this whole idea of, of isolating those things too strongly is is completely brain dead. You know, shouldn't you shouldn't be doing that. It's just, it has to be a continuous loop of self-improvement, whether it's uh, two people or one person, a team or two teams or several teams, it doesn't really matter. You have to have this feedback loop of, of improving your own rule set. Um, so there should not be two separate roles. 
in your opinion? The uh, developer, again, architect. I, I, ideally, I think ideally, yes, it should not be separate. In a perfect world. In a perfect world. And it, it's, a, it's just a matter of the, of the organization size, right? If the organization becomes too large, um, it's pretty hard to have everyone do everything, right? Sometimes you start specializing in, in some fashion and uh, saying, okay, uh, maybe for, for the simple reason that, uh, um, let's say you, have a, you start with a team with five people, then maybe you can get five people to agree on something. It's, if, they, if they know each other well, Possibly. and if they, if they like each other, and if they respect each other, and if they have lunch and dinner together, and if they're friends and get by, they will find a way. And in this ideal world, one of them will know more about networking, and one of them will know more about databases, and one will know more about UI programming, and they will, each and each will have their own you know, expertise, and they will agree, and the, and the one with the, best, with the best rationale, the one with the best arguments will win, and then they will, they will actually always build the perfect system. Now, that's, that's awesome. That's the best kind of scenario they can have with no dedicated architect. And if it's 10 people, maybe it's still possible. With 50 people, it's kind of hard because it's pretty hard to get 50 people to agree on anything. I mean, even with five people, you have to, it's pretty hard to agree on where to have lunch. So if it's 50 <laughs> people making a, a fundamentally important decision like uh, what programming language do we use? Mm -hmm. Do you think they'd agree? I, 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 don't know, I don't know 50 programmers who would agree on a programming language to use. I, I no longer, I, I no longer know, know, that, know those kinds of people anymore. <laughs> there'd, there'd be some people who want to do Erlang, some would do, want to do Clojure, some would want to do uh, Node, and some would do Java and C Sharp and Haskell and OCAM, okay, whatever. They'd all want something, else, something different. And somebody has to make that decision. Maybe that decision is very forward-looking and they pick, let's say, Clojure or, or Haskell. Or maybe it's very conservative. They, they pick something like Java. Whatever it is, somebody has to make that decision. So I think um, in the end, it comes down to explicit or implicit seniority at some point in time where somebody has the authority to make that decision. Ideally, that is not a, a manager because that is kind of the wrong authority, right? Ideally, it would be somebody who has technical authority, who has experience, um, and who has seen this thing work, and who's seen other things fail, and who knows when to take a risk and when to avoid it, and how many battles to fight at one particular point in time. And that is actually an excellent definition of an architect, right? Somebody with at least some experience. I don't think there's it's a good, ever a good idea to have an architect with zero experience. I think everybody will agree on that. So you have somebody with some experience who make a, who make a decision and to just and then again next thing try to get things to agree and to buy into that decision and to actually make it their own because if if it's just if it's something that you continuously disagree with that's kind of the the worst kind of uh, the worst kind of programmer you can have on your team right somebody who hates all the decisions that you made they want to program X but you make them program Y. They will find a way to do X in Y somehow, and that's not that's going not going to be fun. So it sounds like communication is also important, very important. Extremely important. I think um, having a solid technical background is one is one very important thing, and it, this is something that um, helps you make good decisions because you understand what it is that you're deciding. But at least equally important is to be able to uh, to communicate them well, right? You can make the best decisions. If everybody thinks they're stupid decisions, nobody's going to respect them. So it's kind of a mixture. You have to have those communication skills. I think they're very, very important. That is a matter of, of being able to convince people, you know, just like, let me explain this idea to you. And maybe you grab a napkin or you draw on some flip, flip chart, whatever. You, mm -hmm. you make a quick drawing. It doesn't have to be, you know 
doesn't have to be perfect UML. That's another thing we can talk about. It doesn't have to be a perfect picture. It has to be a picture that's clear enough to communicate your idea and communicate and c convince the other party that it's a good idea to, to do that. Right. So that will be one thing. But that is kind of the, uh, that's also a view that is very restricted on the relationship between the software architect or the person assuming the software architecture role right now, software architect, architect's role right now, and a software developer. There are other people around those two that are equally as important. One good example would be the, um, the person making the decisions about what to build, not how to build it, but what to build, right? And that is also somebody the architect needs to talk to. Because if you're, say, a product manager, and you come up with this awesome idea for a fantastic product, who is going to tell you that this is not something you can build? Is it, you know, if it's, if, if, if one of the programmers has a limited view of the thing, they had, they're just tasked with, I don't know, maybe building a fancy UI or maybe building the fancy database lookup table, whatever it is, maybe they won't see that the whole thing is a bad idea. So I would say that sort of the architect's um, role to question those things as well. So you'd start out, if we, go, if we start this from the beginning, the very first thing as an architect that you would have to do is be very, very um, uh, skeptical about and very demanding about the requirements that, that your whatever domain expert gives to you. Somebody wants to have something built, you're responsible for helping build that. It's not as if you're the project manager, that could be another role, right? That's, that's not, the, it's, it's just somebody has to look for the, the feasibility, the viability of the whole thing. Um, that's what though. So looking at requirements would be kind of the first thing to look at. I think that's that's where you, where you should start from. Um, if you look at that, then then the, obvi the obvious next question is, um, what are those requirements, and will you get all of them? Right. So as an architect who talks to let's say a, a business expert or a domain expert, you're going to get lots of um, lots of domain requirements, right? Like this is the functional thing that I want to do. This is the business rule that it has to whatever apply. But as an architect, you also have to care about the things that are not in the business requirements. Like you want to have something that you, for example, um, can build with the team that you have or with the resources of other kind at your disposal. Or uh, maybe you have, uh, maybe you're, hopefully you're taking care about building something that'll last for the lifetime of the system. Probably the domain expert doesn't even know what you're talking about, right? When you're saying, well, I have to build it in a way so that I can evolve to a new version of the database or the operating system or the internet or whatever it is that, that is going to grow over the course of time, then it's also your role as an architect to consider those things and to build the long-term viability into, into the system, not into the, not into the project. That would be another, another distinct, distinct effect, right? Your, your, the, the, the horizon you're looking at is not the, the project lifetime, but hopefully the system's lifetime, so that you make some decisions that will only that'll only be reasonable then no, that they'll they'll be reasonable now for something that you want to achieve in the long run. So those are all things that are sort of responsibility for the technical overall shape of the system that you're building. So if if um someone very you said before that it's better if the management doesn't make software architectural decisions. Yeah. Um, if you are working for a company where they have made those decisions, um, what's the best way to deal with that? Well, I mean, there are certain things that you just can't change for whatever reason, right? Just maybe, 
maybe somebody would lose face if you if you changed it maybe uh, maybe it's i don't know some business decision because you're a partner with company x and they provide this technology so you have to use it sometimes there are things you can't change and i think as a software developer or a software architect you have to be comfortable enough with accepting some things that are not changeable unless you're willing to change jobs which is fine as well but um If it's not something of that kind, then you simply have to work hard to get those things changed. Let's say somebody picked a technology because a vendor told them that this is the best technology to have. And the vendor played excellent golf and had and provided perfect dinner, so they're likely to believe them. Then um, your, only your only goal can be to slowly and persistently convince them that something else, maybe that open source solution of yours is a better one than this commercial product or the other way around. That's entirely... That's entirely possible if, if sometimes very, very hard work. And as like in any other organization, especially large organization, it's sometimes really hard and can be very tedious to do that. Um, so you have to make know for yourself whether you have the stamina to do that and whether you want to invest all of that time. But again, you can, I mean, just going there, even as an architect, even, even if it's you know, all, even if you're within your team and you just have assumed that role because somebody said, well, can you make the architectural decisions? Even then, There will be things that you can't change, even though it's your colleague sitting next to you who made that decision. They may just be, you know, wrong or misguided or in a bad mood or whatever. You're, you have to convince people all the time. Okay. So what tools do you have? What can you use um, as a software architect? So first of all, um, very obviously, you can always uh, use code because in the end, the, the most important thing is the system that you're building, right? So... If that is the right level of abstraction, then by all means build some code, right? I think that's that's the that, that will be the, that will be my first my first tool and the first thing in in many cases, not in all of them, but in many cases, you you want to show something, you demonstrate, so you build a small prototype, you build a little reference impl implement or little reference application that shows this is how the architecture is supposed to work. You address some doubts about your architecture by building a proof of concept. You know you expect that your I don't know, your, your idea for this new architecture is to use that fancy NoSQL database, um, but you know that you, one of your team members is, uh, is, an, is an old school or a relational database guru, and they're going to question whether this is actually usable for anything real. So maybe you build something that shows how to insert a few billion records and query them and show that this is actually... Those are, those are things that actually show uh, things at various, level, at various levels of abstractions using just code. Sometimes that's the right way to do things. Sometimes um, the tools that you have at your disposal are just a pen and paper uh, because you just draw a diagram and sometimes a sketch, a sketch is the right level of, of abstraction, not a formally correct uh, case tool model in UML or something like that, but rather a quick, a quick drawing that illustrates some point. But of course, there are also uh, tools that you can use that have a more uh, formal background. So... Um, Maybe because I'm an, 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 an old person, but I don't necessarily object to UML. I've used it in the past, like 20 years ago, and I've used it throughout my career over and over again. I think, for those who don't know, the Unified Modeling Language is a standardized language for visualizing object-oriented and other software is a useful thing. Um, granted, it's completely over-engineered and bloated, and every tool that, that uh, allows you to produce UML sucks. That's, there's no question about that at all. But that's not that's not necessarily a reason to never use it at all. So if you have a if you have good tooling, if you have one of those one of those UML tools that are at least almost usable, 
you can use that to produce diagrams and that's fine as well. They offer some additional benefits like they know that you're not drawing a picture, they know that you're drawing a model so that they can, so they can apply some rules and that is both the benefit and the curse depending on what you want to do. It's perfectly fine to do that. Um, using one of those tools does not necessarily mean that you sub subscribe to the idea that everything has to be uh, modeled up front and then generated 100%. That's, although we can talk about that too. So the, the, um, the tools would be um, a code, it would be uh, just um, uh, sketches, it would be formal diagrams. Another one uh, that I also like is prose. I think it's a, it's a nice way to sometimes just you know write something down in clear words where somebody can read them and, you know, know what you mean. Some, I mean, I like sketches and, you know, and um, a, a little post-it notes. That's all, all fine with me. I don't object to that at all. But sometimes I like to read something that actually has a certain logic and story and, you know, beginning and end. That's fine as well. And ideally, you mix all of those and you come up with a with a set of ways to communicate what you want to do. So in the end, I think the, the as I've said it before, the most important thing is that you actually come up with something that works, that runs. Anything else that you've produced apart from that is just, you know, add-on stuff. So it's really important that, um, that you don't, as an architect, view your job as being done once you've produced uh, the concept or the documentation. It's really done once you've produced a system that actually fulfills the requirements that you came up with at the beginning. Yeah, you're under the assumption that UML is easy to understand or that your well, team has the capacity yeah. to understand it. So we can talk about UML. UML is not easy to understand because it is so big, right? And if we if you if you do if you give somebody a test on, on UML, I practic practically guarantee that ninety eight percent of all existing software practitioners will fail if it's all of UML. But if I give you a, a class diagram or a state chart or a sequence diagram, then most people can sort of read it. Maybe not draw it perfectly, but they can sort of read it. And it also uh, has no downsides compared to whatever notation you just invented on the fly because nobody knows that either, right? So it's, again, I, I think it's, 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 the, it's wrong to be religious about this. I, I'm, I'm not at all, I'm not a big UML fan, as I said. I consider it bloated. I would love for there to be something like a lightweight UML. That would be a cool thing. I think some people are actually trying to do that. So uh, one of the people that um, I hope we're going to interview on the, on the podcast sometime in the future uh, is Simon Brown, um, who talks a lot about visualizing software architectures, and he has, the, has his own notation um, that is more lightweight than UML. Um, and he... Uh, he talks about and people like it a lot i like it a lot i like everything he does but still i can't help but notice that it looks an awful lot like uml so maybe the secret is to not just call to just not call it uml and then it's fine but that's okay when we start out um and we want to start a software project mm -hmm. um is all the architecture always the same well of course not you could you could say that uh, no two architectures are the same because obviously every system is different, the requirements are different, the uh, decisions that you've made are different. Maybe two systems are very, very similar if they started out with the same thing and maybe forked at some point in time, or maybe you have a product line approach where you you know have a little bit of variation. But in general, no, two systems will not, will not be the same. There are some, some things that are shared, uh, so you could say that you can, rec you can recognize patterns or architectural styles, as people like to call them, in different systems and talk about them. So uh, what kind of styles are there? So if you talk about an architectural style, you can, you can imagine that or you can envision that as something pretty similar to a design pattern. Many people know that. So it's kind of a, a certain 
a collaboration, a certain kind of uh, um, constellation of our, our coexistence of roles that certain elements play, and you recognize them again, again and again. An example would be something very obvious like client-server. A client-server architectural style is a system that's composed of two things. One is the server and one is the client. And the client issues calls, typically remote calls to the server, and the business logic resides on the server, and then it does something, it computes the result and returns it to the client. That would be a client-server system. So that would be an example of an architectural style. There are many of those. They've been cataloged um, as as people like to do, they they uh, they look for similar patterns in, in different scenarios and sort of extract the commonalities and give them an, a name. Another example would be something like a pipes and filter architecture, where people have noticed that this is something that occurs again and again, because when you have a pipes and filter architecture, there is a, a, a dump pipe and a smart filter. That's kind of the model where a filter can do something fancy and uh, just passes on the data along the pipe and then another fil filter can do something else that's also fancy and you can connect and you can plug together different filters to achieve a certain result that would be kind of what you know from the unix command line where you have a pipe uh, symbol connecting different commands and you cat something into something that you sort and, and so on and so on that would be that, this general pattern would be a pipes and filter architecture there are lots more um and uh, this is a reference to, um, to literature that's out there that actually talks about those things and gives you some guidance as to what this particular architectural style is good for, what you could use it for. And then you can uh, look at the abstract, uh, abstract description of a problem and at this abstract solution and then look at your concrete problem and check whether it maybe matches one of those abstract things. And if it does, then you can try applying that abstract solution. It's kind of giving you uh, a number of tools or uh, pre pre-composed um, predefined ways of solving problems in terms of architectural styles yeah I was listening to a podcast recently and um, the it was kind of like the word three-tier architecture mm -hmm. popped up and yeah. then um, went on assuming that I knew what it was yeah um, that's, a, that's a very good example I yeah didn't so maybe you can tell me what that is I can tell you what a three-tier architecture is, yeah. So a three-tier architecture would be one where you have, well, obviously three tiers, typically uh, referring to tiers as opposed to layers. So those are two, well, yeah, let's, we'll can't get into more detail that, but the, the three-tier the three architecture you're talking about physical tiers. So you would have, say, a database server and an application server that hits the database server and then some client system that talks to the application server. So if, for example, you have a, a, uh, an application running on your laptop that's written in uh, using uh, Microsoft tooling to run on Windows or maybe Apple tooling to run on the Mac. Um, and that talks to a, let's say, Java EE application server that in turn talks to an Oracle database. That would be a typical three-tier architecture. So sometimes those terms carry some historical baggage. In this particular case, it was uh, a three-tier architecture because this third tier, this middle tier, was introduced into the old client-server architecture. So it all started out a long time ago. So should be called the sandwich architecture. I, I, I haven't heard that term, but it would be <laughs> just perfectly up, fitting. So. Yeah, so it <laughs> would, would, have been, would have been fitting as well. So essentially, yeah, it started out with client-server. That's kind of, that was, the, that was the revolution after, you know, everybody just used a mainframe. You know, do you remember those things? You don't, but, don't. you know, a mainframe. <laughs> everybody connects to a mainframe from a dumb terminal, a little bit like a web browser, 
but it was a green <laughs> so it was a sorry it was a green text terminal that everybody used to connect to a mainframe all the logic was in the mainframe and then the client server revolution uh, started at the end of the 80s beginning of the 90s where essentially there was suddenly computing power on the clients on the pcs so people had a pc that did some local computing but it still needed to share data you know you needed to share data with your colleague who was sitting next to you so what happened was you used a central database and that was the first client server wave where there was a centralized db2 or oracle or sybase database with pcs running fat clients fat applications hitting the database so all the sql would go sql requests would go from your client to your database and talk directly and at some point in time that turned out not to be that great of an idea because um you didn't have that centralized logic that you had to roll out things so people introduced this middle tier and that was all the rage in the 90s and early 2000s um, before the web stuff sort of evolved from it and became the dominant paradigm. So that's a new paradigm, or it's the same thing? Well, you could say um, these days most systems that we have are sort of have sort of evolved from a three-tiered architectural style. So it's still people have a client, which is typically a web browser. That would be the most dominant form, or maybe a native application, typically on a mobile device. And then they talk to some centralized service. And then that centralized service talks to some backend system, for example, a database or a legacy system. So you could, you could argue that's a three-tier thing. Although typically uh, the middle tier is way more complex than just a single box, right? They're, those days are long past. These days we have server farms with tons of stateless, th stateless things. So for example, your, uh, your middle tier or your service tier or your service layer again this mushy terminology we can talk about the difference between layers and tiers but the, this terminology uh, essentially most often means that you uh, that you have something more or less resembling a rest based system and rest would be another of those architectural styles although in contrast to the others it has a pretty exact definition um, but it's also derived from those other things in fact if you look at the at the, at the orig original rest uh, thesis uh, you know Rest has origined by somebody, uh, Roy Fielding, who wrote his PhD thesis about this about this topic. He, he defines this as an architectural style, and he contrasts it to, for example, client-server and distributed objects as, as a, other well-known architectural styles. So you've told, you said, I think, a couple times that we're going to talk about tiers, the difference between tiers and layers. So yeah. what is the difference between tiers and well, layers? Well, it's not really that important, but as I <laughs> mentioned it, so the uh, so a tier would be something physical, right? If you have a three-tier architecture, there are three, at least three physical machines. And layers, a layer is just a software concept. So in a layered architecture, you have, and that's, again, an architectural style. Layered architecture, layers is an architectural style. You actually uh, group your software into layers that sit on top of each other that would be kind of the the you know the graphical model that i'm just showing by waving my hands around but the you have a layer sitting on top of another layer sitting on top of another layer and uh, the in general every layer is just allowed to access the layer below that would be sort of the rule in some layered styles you're allowed to skip a layer from the top to the bottom but you're never allowed to go from uh, the bottom to the top you're never never moving upward in terms of dependency. So the idea would be you have, like, for example, your, your database layer and your logic layer is allowed to make calls into the database layer. You're allowed to call a you know, function that will persist something, 
But the function that accesses the database is never allowed to call back to the logic or to call into the logic layer. The same will be true for the UI. Now, in that layered architecture, you might have something like, I don't know, three or five or seven layers, however complicated you want to make things. And then you can make a separate decision as to how to deploy that. It could be a single application that has seven layers. Then that would be a single tier application. Or you could have three tiers where maybe the the uh, the persistence persistency layer and the data access layer resides on machine one and the logic layer and process layer resides on machine two and the dialogue and UI layer resides on machine three. So it's it's two separate decisions that you make as opposed to the logical layers and the physical tiers. And those are that's one of the things architects talk about, right? So if you have a bunch of architects talking to each other, they will they will brag about how many or how how few layers their systems have. So which is better? Well, of course, that's a... <laughs> yeah. Subjective uh, question. Which yeah. do you prefer? Well, yes. Obviously, you always have this, have this, uh, this pendulum swing, swinging back and forth between extremes, right? We, I, think, I know that in the past, a long time ago, I went completely crazy with this whole idea of, of layers. And with, there were tons of layers, each doing just one tiny thing, which, of course, is a disaster because specifically in a statically typed language, this also means a, means a change of type system from one layer to the next, which means you're copying stuff. And if you look at one of those applications from the 90s, very often you can see that they spend 80% of their time just copying the same data from one layer to the other. So at the, at the expense of, uh, of performance, um, so if you've improved, you've hopefully, you've potentially improved your long-term maintainability because you can switch layers. That's one of the benefits, right? You can replace it by something else uh, at the cost of making the whole system way less efficient and, and performing, which is probably not a good idea. So I think that's not good. But I've also seen systems that ignored this idea completely and just, you know, m meshed everything into one big mud muddy thing, which is, of course, also not a good idea because... The, the whole idea of layers is this separation, is this idea of having separate things that address separate parts. Um, and it's, of course, just one of those things. And, uh, and you do that because you, you want to have this long-term maintainability. So it definitely makes sense to have some of that. But again, it's just one example of things that you could consider as an architect. There are many others as well. So has the, the preferred, what's the most popular architectural style currently? Hmm. Is there one? <laughs> Is there one? I, I would probably, probably, well, I hesitate to call something like microservices an architectural style because it is so ill-defined. But I think most people these days, when they build a modern system and want, want to do things in a state-of-the-art fashion, um, they're going to end up with something that is more or less service-oriented or microservice driven or has a microservice architectural style. Um, again, the, I'm, I'm a little reluctant to use the term architectural style with that because um, that is actually a scientific term. And if you look, for example, at the REST paper, this thing that it uses very specific terminology and rules to define this thing. So we don't have any of that for the microservices world as yet. But still, if, you, if, if, we're, if we're allowed to be a little lax with our terms, then in this typical new fangled style, um, you try to build things... Um, so that they are small. That's one of the major goals. You build smaller things because I think it's, that's, it's correct to say that if uh, past the past few decades have told us something is that big systems are bad. So we try to build smaller systems, 
try to isolate things. We try to apply the principle of separation of concerns to make things small and focused and modular. And um, in, a, in a microservices style, as opposed to any other modular style, uh, one of the ideas is that you have um, small independent modules that are independently deployable. So you end up with a system that is composed of a number of independently deployable, independently running services, typically very small, pretty small services that collaborate to fulfill the goal. And that matches nicely with two, uh, matches nicely uh, the current um, uh, infrastructure that we have, which is cloud-based and, and, you know, has these kinds of platforms that people can easily deploy things onto as opposed to it being really hard. They have these typical data stores that allow for access by many, many concurrent services at the same time, possibly distributed across the world. And um, you typically end up with a service layer, again, those, those words, the layer word, again, the L word, again, that would then hopefully be something like REST-oriented or RESTful um, to offer its services to any number of clients. So that will be one of those popular, popular styles. I think we're going to probably going to talk at some other point, some other episode about uh, alternatives to this, but that is probably right now the most important style for these kinds of systems. Again, it makes no sense at all to apply that kind of architectural style to, let's say, a standalone iOS application that you're developing for your mobile device or a command line tool that you build to uh, convert some data format into something else. That would be, it would be kind of the worst thing for any architect to claim that they have one solution that applies to every to every problem. Although sometimes people tend to evoke that feeling. <laughs> so, but even like a command line application, if it's really small, does that have an architecture? Absolutely. Yes, of course. Of course. First of all, it's embedded into an, a larger scale architecture, right? So your Unix operating system, if that's what you're using, has its own architecture, your small program is just one of them. But internally, it very likely has um, some structure, unless it's a two-line program. It has some structure. Let's say, for example... You have a program that um, does something very trivial. Uh, trivial. It, uh, I don't know, counts some characters or looks for a pattern. It's, you're building the grep tool, right? You're counting mm -hmm. for a, the occurrence of a certain regex in, in an input stream. Then that would definitely have an architecture. Yeah, that architecture would be the decisions that you make about how you, how you cut apart this problem into modules, for example. So... If you want to look at a very old paper, and we should definitely put that into, show, into the show notes as well, there is one from, I think, 1972, something like that, from David Parnas, um, who talked about, or wrote about um, how to cut things, how to, how to modularize things, how to, build mo how to build good modules. And there are certain things that you can do. Well, you have a 10-step program, so it's got obviously 10 modules because each step is one module. That's kind of a stupid way of doing things. And the better way to, would be to build modules that, that hide certain decisions that you made. So this is the module that accesses the input file. And this is the module that accesses the output file. And this is the module that takes whatever comes in from the input stream and puts it to the output stream. And this is the module that you put in there that augments or decorates this behavior with something. Now you have a, have a set of modules that encapsulate a certain decision and um, they can be changed um, without affecting the others because they have an external interface and an internal implementation. Those are ideas that they're, they're exactly the same ideas that we have almost 50 years later um, in modern architectures, but it's still the same kind of decisions that you have, the same decisions that you make about how to, how to structure things, what are the components and the connections, the rules that govern those components and connections. I think that 
I, um, I think that the software architecture is very important. And as a software developer, I want to learn software architecture so I can write better software. That makes sense. Yeah. That's my, uh, that's my goal when I look into software architecture. Yeah. Um, I, I'm willing to do anything to become a better programmer. I think there are uh, people who really view architecture as a, as a distinct discipline, as something really very different from, from software development or software engineering. Um, I think that's completely wrong. I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that's not the way to do it. I think if you do software architecture that's not very, very closely related to the software, something is really, really wrong. And um, that is something I feel extremely strongly about. So um, it's a very good idea to view architecture as something that applies to any software developer um, as a as a role as a certain set of responsibilities that you have to have to address somehow that you have to fulfill as your as part of your daily work i completely agree with that the um there is a distinction to other architecture disciplines so there are some there's there's a discipline called for example enterprise architecture mm -hmm. right which is something quite different And sometimes uh, there is some there is some confusion at, when people say they're an architect, right? When when you talk to people and they say, "Well, I'm an architect at company X Y Z," you really have to ask what they mean by that. And there are certain people who have have an active role into uh, in developing a system, and there are certain people who are uh, who have a completely different role, which is to sort of maintain the company's application portfolio decisions like decide where to build software and where to apply commercial off-the-shelf solutions that's a that's possibly a very important thing for that company that's perfectly fine but it's a completely different kind of work it's a different line of work even it has some connection to to technology and you could argue that it should have more of a connection than it often has but it's really not the discipline we're talking about. When we're talking about software architecture, we're not talking about enterprise architecture or company-wide IT architecture. Those are really different different things. There are also people who uh, work in larger companies who maintain architectural rules or rule sets or, uh, or guidebooks for the organization as a whole. This is more in the, in the idea of standardization across different projects, different systems. So, Whenever this particular company builds uh, builds a product, it builds it using Java 8 on top of uh, product XYZ using framework Z. That's a that's also a different kind of architecture. I'm not ruling it out as something that's that's always bad. It can be a good thing to have some standardization. I think in the last few years um, we've seen less of that. We've seen fewer attempts to really standardize everything down to I like to say the position of the last curly brace because that's kind of a of a wrong-headed approach because it wastes so much effort and so much resources for something that's really clearly not valuable so with these more service-oriented uh, approaches there is a certain tendency to leave decisions to the to the people who build the service and to only standardize on the outside as opposed to standardizing everything inside which i think is a good is a good thing so that would be a different kind of architecture Sometimes you have people in, in larger companies who do, uh, do um, cross-cutting architecture work. So they come up with good solutions that are supposed to fit into the, um, into the company's overall strategy, right? So let's say you're a big company, you have this strategy of, 
you know, digitization, you want to, you know, become the Uber of whatever. Um, so you spend a lot of, a lot of effort doing that. Then maybe you have some overarching, um, overarching architectural guideline that says this is the way we do single sign-on and this is the way we uh, we maintain our multi-data center strategy, whatever it is. And then maybe those those uh, things will result in actual uh, in actual uh, guidelines for, for architects. I think it's very important to not lose touch with the actual project if you do that. Similar to the architects who, can, who cannot, cannot afford to lose touch with developers if it's a separate architect. This company-wide architect can never afford to lose touch with the project. I think it's a very risky thing. Better to not have them. Sometimes you have to have them to so address that address that risk. Is there anything else you would like to say about software architecture? So one of the things that I found is that, um, and maybe you can see some of that in that discussion we had about UML. When we talked about UML, one of the things that I that I wanted to stress is that if, however bad it is maybe it's good enough and maybe it's better than something you invented yourself, right? Because communication is so important. When I, when, I, when I draw something, when I draw a class diagram with a line and I put a little I put a little arrowhead on it, then you either do or do not know what it means. But if you do, that's clearly better, right? It's clearly better if we have the same understanding about those things. I think that is a uh, common trait in all kinds of communication in all kinds of diagrams and also in all kinds of models and code that you share with people having these this idiomatic understanding about uh, or you know having having those common idioms and patterns and and styles it's all the same thing right it's always it always boils down to when i say pipes and filter some image what evokes this evokes some image in your mind right you have to think of something when i mentioned that that's 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 an important thing it's the same thing with the design pattern with all of those things and i think an, a, an art that's been a bit lost in the last few decades is this idea of establishing that as a language as part of your architecture work so there's an there's an older paper which we will also put into the show notes by marcus Foter, somebody i used to do a podcast with for a long time um We'll, we'll have to get him on the show as well. He wrote a paper called Architecture as a Language, and that also has the same idea. It's this idea that if, you, if you're an architect, then you're not only creating a, uh, a text, you're creating a language to write that text in. You're creating um, the, the, the rules and the construction patterns and the things that you can and can't do in this particular language. So I mentioned, for example, that when you're building a system that uh, hits the database, you want to talk about how to, uh, how to do persistence, right? How do I persist something? Um, if you want to talk about how, to, uh, how do I build a service, then you're talking about this is the way we go database, this is the way we serialize the data, this is the way we do XML or JSON or HTTP, whatever it is that you're talking about. Every time you do that, you describe uh, rules in this abstract fashion using those uh, language terms. Like you, you write something like every service accesses its data access object by means of a repository impl that derives from the repository and gets injected by means of whatever. I have no idea. Whatever it is that your architecture comes up with. And this, this is actually, I think, the main task of the architect to come up with the particular language for this system so that 
every uh, every part of that system uses the same language right if you look at if i look at 10 different kinds of entities in my system i look at this uh, they're written using the same language you can see that in domain driven design which is exactly the same thing i've got aggregates and entities my point is not that ddd is good or bad but that there's an underlying idea under under ddd which maybe makes it so popular because it makes it so easy and accessible that you know just take this just make everything but that's not the the more important point is that it's not that you need to have aggregates and entities and value objects and services is that you should think about whether it's these four or five or seven or eight concepts with those particular rules that you need to apply to your particular architecture okay so i mean i have one more question kind of as a wrap up um and that's another subjective question you're a software architect so um what is your favorite architectural style my personal favorite architectural style i i like all things web I'm, i'm a big web fan i think the web is way underrated people still haven't grasped what it's all what it's capable of and i think we should build more that's in line with uh, with the web's architecture or the web's architectural style and that is this rest thing i think there is uh, there is great potential still in there and even after 15 years of it being popular Or becoming more and more popular. It's, I don't think this is uh, this is still this has still entered many people's brains, and that's because it's easy to use it um, in a in a half baked fashion. So, as an overall architectural style, that is a very very to me still very very interesting thing that has a tremendous implications even for for the way we connect applications built by different people across different organizations across the world. It's kind of the only global globally relevant architectural style that i know of that's why i'm still a big fan of it and i've had a a long well i've had a long life or a long career in this in this in this industry and this is the only thing that has been this constantly on my mind for all this time so i'm still a big fan of that so if i want to get started and become a software architect then how do i do that so I think the very first thing is you gather some experience in working with actual systems. So that's a that's a good path that many people are on, right? Including you. So you start building things. Um, you start uh, making your own experiences about what works and what doesn't, and what kind of solution you applied in the past that you can apply now. And when something, some decision that you made early on in the project hurt you very very badly later on, and so you get a feeling for this whole thing. And after you've had, you have to have a solid groundwork of this. I think that's definitely required. It's not something you can you can do when you're when you're fresh out of college. But if you're starting something based on some experience, um, you can you can start looking at what other people have written about this, what the kind of talks people have given about this, the books people have written about this, and you can see that there is some connect some things. So there are some connecting elements between a lot, a lot of the decisions in different scenarios. Whether it's a small system you're building or a large one, whether it's a small team with three people or a big one with 300, there are certain things that you can recognize again and again, and you can actually learn from the uh, from what other people have have experienced with that and the, and apply some of the solutions that they have found to to their problems. So, um, what's your favorite book? Favorite book on software architecture? Yes. Oh, that's a very good question. So. Um, Oddly enough, one of my absolute favorite books is one called Release It, which is not explicitly about architecture. It's about stability patterns. It's by, uh, by uh, Mike Nygaard, who I really, really uh, continuously impressed by everything he's, he's done in the past. So he's written this book, and we're gonna, definitely going to put that into the show notes, I think. 
Uh, he, he writes about things that went wrong in production. And it's amazing how much you can learn from that, as anybody knows who has had a system fail in production. Uh, when he talks about those little things and how what to do about it, what patterns to introduce to make systems more stable. So that is one of my, one of my favorite things. Um, there is um, uh, a number of very good books by Martin Fowler, um, not all of them called uh, Architecture or something or other, but I think pretty much all of them cover a lot of those topics. So uh, Patterns of Enterprise Architecture is no longer that new, but still a very good book in that regard. Um, there is one by our colleague, Gernot Stacke, which is available in German. Um, so that's one to put in the show notes as well for those re uh, listeners of ours who can read German. Um, there are uh, a series of books called the Patterns, uh, various patterns books that touch on software architecture topics. So the POSA series is one of the patterns of object. No, patterns of software architecture. I think that's the term. I'm going to put that there as well. And if, obviously these days there are lots of uh, blog posts and things. So we'll have a long list of, of things to point people to who want to read up on this. So we should get started with release it and then go on from there? Because otherwise it sounds like well, it's... Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's probably not the, the reading order I'd recommend, but it's... Uh, <laughs> it's Well, yeah, it's it's the one I recommend. It doesn't make a lot of logical sense, but it's definitely the one, a good, a fun book to start with. So I definitely recommend that one. <laughs> and again, we're probably going to think of a lot more and we're going to add them to the show notes as well. Well, I think that's all the time we have now. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to answer all of my questions. Thanks for having me. It's great fun. Um, and another thank you to all of our listeners. Until next time.